Okay, tell me start again. I forget. <laughs> oh, everybody. Oh, hi. My oh, sorry, sorry. I usually say we're alive, and I just jumped right into the... Wait, are we recording? Am I supposed to say something? Sorry, I jumped right into the episode instead of telling you we're, we're recording by going, we're alive. I thought maybe you were just going solo. Okay, get me off my own show. Yeah, I would do that. You would do that. Wow. Cousin. <laughs> so, how's everybody today? Rachel, how oh, are you? Ra- Rachel's fine. Rachel's... Rachel wants to call all her cousins mother cousins. Oh, okay. How's uh how's Floyd the dog? He's making an appearance this week. Yeah, he's um pouting right now. Well, yeah, you you're not letting him do his thing of making clickety clack sounds well, on the hardwood but he floor. He wants to like pace the floor in front of the desk and then stick his face in the microphone and like. Well, I don't think he can get yeah. to the microphone. Well, I know what he's trying. Yeah, that's true. But he wants to do it from your side. Which makes perfect desk. sense. Well, that does make sense. He's like. There needs to be nothing between. He's trying to push you out of the way. Yeah, there needs to be nothing. He's like, there needs to be nothing between me and my human. Yeah, well, he's fine. Yeah. He's just pouting because it's cold outside. Yeah. So, well, I'm okay too. Oh, good. Yeah, I figure I'll, I'll inject myself into this. Yeah, I would have asked. Well, that's on me, I guess. So, hi everybody. I'm Jeff. No, I guess I'm still Rachel. That's Rachel. We have a special guest today in the studio with Floyd. Yes, Floyd. And today, which is unfortunate that he's our special guest today, because we're doing part two of the story time. (laughs) Yeah, Floyd doesn't really care for story time. Yeah. So we're we're, we're dealing with the exciting conclusion to The Murdered Cousin. So just a quick recap for everybody, since it's been a week since you've listened, maybe. Um... Basically, this, the synopsis so far is we are introduced to our protagonist. Um, she lives with her dad following the death of her mom. Okay. Um, her dad subsequently in this story dies. She has not reached the age of majority, so she goes to live with her uncle, her dad's brother, who is distant because the uncle has shunned society due to the fact that he was accused of murder. You know, as you do. Um, due to some gambling debts. Hmm. And while there's no conclusive evidence that he did murder the person, the accusation still hangs heavy on his person. So polite society started shunning him. So he said, all right, well, screw you guys. I'm not going to associate with anybody. <laughs> yeah. So she goes to live with his uncle that she knows nothing about. Fun. That's always exciting. Yeah. Um, I have lots of uncles. Unsurprisingly, his house is in a bit of a state of decay because he does not have a lot of money to keep it up. Um, and she, upon arriving, is greeted by her cousin Emily. Hi, Emily. Who she forms a fast friendship with because that's what you do. Yeah. Cousins are best friends. Yeah. She also meets her other cousin, Edward, who she does not like at all. And uh, when we last left, when we closed out, Edward had just proposed to our heroine. And she rejected him. Yeah, she doesn't like him. And he did not take that well. His name's Edward. I don't know. And um, on the conclusion, she made it safely to her room, but did not feel very safe. Mm. So... 
we are going to pick up the story from there. We're going to see what the fallout was from that, from that, and we're going to finish the story out. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Um, yeah. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to that. Otherwise, part two is not going to make a lot of sense for you, even with my fantastic recap. Or just guess. Or just guess. You can also just guess what happened. I mean, my recap does give you enough to be like, okay, I can follow the rest of the story. But you do miss out on a, I would say, a very good description of this decaying house. Like, it's it's a very good port pic- picture of it. Well, you need to know what the house looks like, so go listen. Yeah, well, you, it... it it just kind of illustrates the decay of the per pe- of some of the people inside of it, like how their how their insides are. That sounds gross, but um. Well, you know what I mean, like their moral. <laughs> yes, I got it. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Selling zombies now. Well, you know. <laughs> the story might have zombies. Maybe. You gotta listen to all this episode to find out. Ooh, yeah. Teaser. Little teaser. So. On that note, um, I don't have anything else to add. Do you want to do any like how, do we want to do any housekeeping, or do we just want to dive in? Let's just go for it. All right. Well, before we dive in, we'll do another quick break for our sponsor. That's words from us about this service. Yep. We keep saying, well, I keep thinking we'll re-record it one day, but we never do because nope. because so. Why would I do that? I guess on that note, once again, here's some words from us about a about a service that we use. Yep. And then it'll be story time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I rose the next next morning, it was with the fervent hope that I might never again behold his face or even hear his name. But such a consummation, though devoutly to be wished, was hardly likely to occur. The painful impressions of yesterday were too vivid to be at once erased, and I could not help feeling some dim foreboding of coming annoyance and evil. To expect, on my cousin's part, anything like delicacy or consideration for me was out of the question. I saw that he had set his heart upon my property, and that he was not likely easily to forego such a prize, possessing what might have been considered opportunities and facilities almost to compel my compliance. I now keenly felt the unreasonableness of my father's conduct in placing me to reside with the family, with all members of which, with one exception. He was wholly unacquainted, unacquainted, and I bitterly felt the helplessness of my situation. I determined, however, in the event of my cousin's persevering in his addresses, to lay all the particulars before my uncle, although he had never, in kindness or intimacy, gone a step beyond our first interview, and to throw myself upon his hospitality and his sense of honor for protection against the repetition of such annoyances. My cousin's conduct may appear to have been an inadequate cause for such serious uneasiness, but... My alarm was awakened neither by his acts nor his words, but entirely by his manner, which was strange and even intimidating. At the beginning of our yesterday's interview, there was a sort of bullying swagger in his air, which, towards the end, gave place to something bordering upon the brutal vehemence of an undisguised ruffian, a transition which had tempted me into a belief that he might seek, even forcibly, to exhort from me a consent to his wishes, or, by means still more horrible, of which I scarcely dared to trust myself to think, to possess himself of my property. I was, early next day summoned to attend my uncle in his private room, which lay in a corner turret of the old building, and and thither I accordingly went, wondering all the way what this unusual measure might prelude. 
When I entered the room, he did not rise in his usual courteous way to greet me, but simply pointed to a chair opposite to his own. This boded nothing agreeable. I sat down, however, silently waiting until he should open the conversation. Lady Margaret, at length, he said, in a tone of greater sternness than I thought him capable of using, I have hitherto spoken to you as a friend, but I have not forgotten that I am also your guardian, and that my authority as such gives me the right to control your conduct. I shall put a question to you, and I expect and will demand a plain, direct answer. Have I rightly been informed that you have contemptuously rejected the suit in hand of my son Edward? I stammered forth with a good deal of trepidation. I believe, that is, I have, sir rejected my cousin's proposal, and my coldness and discouragement might have convinced him that I had determined to do so. Madam, he replied he, with a suppressed, but as it appeared to me, intense anger, I have lived long enough to know that coldness and discouragement in such terms form the common cant of a worth coquette, of a worthless coquette. You know to the fool as well as I that coldness and discouragement may be so exhibited as to conceive their object that he as to convince their object that he is neither distasteful nor indifferent to the person who wears that manner you know too none better that an that an affected neglect when skillfully managed is amongst the most formidable of the allurements which artful beauty beauty can employ i tell you madam that having without one word spoken in discouragement permitted my son's most marked attentions for a twelve-month or more, you have no right to dismiss him with no further explanation than demurely telling him that you always, that had always looked coldly upon him, and neither your wealth nor your ladyship, there was an emphasis of scorn on the word which ha would have become Sir Giles' overreach himself, can warrant you in treating with contempt the affectionate regard of an honest heart. I was too much shocked at this undisguised attempt to bully me into acquiescence in the interested and unprincipled plan for their own aggrandizement, which I now perceived my uncle and his son had deliberately formed, at once to find strength or collectedness to frame an answer to what he had said. At length, I replied, with a firmness that surprised myself, In all that you have said just now, sir, you have grossly misstated my conduct and motives. Your information must have been most incorrect, as far as it regards my conduct towards my cousin. My manner towards him could have conveyed nothing but dislike, and if anything could have added to the strong aversion which I have long felt towards him. It would be his attempting thus to frighten me into, into a marriage which he knows to be revolting to me, and which is sought by him only as a means of securing to himself whatever property is mine. As I said this, I fixed my eyes upon those of my uncle, but he was too old in his world's ways to falter beneath the gaze of more searching eyes than mine. He simply said, Are you acquainted with the provisions of your father's will? I answered in the affirmative, and he continued, Then, you must be aware that if my son Edward were, which God forbid, the unprincipled, reckless man, the rough ruffian you pretend to think him, here he spoke very slowly as if he intended that every word which escaped him should be registered in my memory, while the, at the same time the expression of his countenance underwent a gradual but horrible change, and the eyes which he fixed upon me became so darkly vivid that I almost lost sight of everything else. If he were what you have described him, do you think, child, he would have found no shorter way than marriage to gain his ends? A single blow, an outrage, not a degree worse than you insinuate, would transfer your property to us. I stood staring at him for many minutes after he had ceased to speak, 
fascinated by that terrible serpent-like gaze until he continued with a welcome change of countenance. I will not speak again to you upon this topic until one month has passed. You shall have time to consider the relative advantages of the two courses which are open to you. I should be sorry to hurry you to a decision. I am satisfied with having saved my feelings upon the subject and pointed out to you the path of duty. Remember this day, month, remember this day, month, not one word sooner. He then rose and I left the room, much agitated and exhausted. This interview, all the circumstances attending it, but most particularly the formidable expression of my uncle's countenance while he talked, though hypothetically, of murder, combined to arouse all my worst suspicions of him. I dreaded to look upon the face that had so recently worn the appalling livery of guilt and malignity. I regarded it with the mingled fear and loathing which one looks upon an object which has tortured them in a nightmare. In a few days after my interview, the particulars of which I have just detailed, I found a note upon my toilet table, and on reading it as follows. My dear Lady Margaret, you will perhaps, you will be, perhaps, surprised to see a strange face in your room today. I have dismissed your Irish maid and secured a French one to wait upon you, a step rendered necessary by my proposing shortly to visit the continent with all my family, your faithful guardian, Arthur Tyrell. On inquiry, I found that my faithful attendant was actually gone and far on her way to the town of Galway, and in her stead there appeared a tall, raw-boned, ill-looking, elderly Frenchwoman, whose sullen and presuming manner seemed to imply that her vocation had never before been that of a lady's maid. I could not have regarded her as a creature of my uncle's, and therefore to be dreaded, even had she been in no other way suspicious. Oh, I could not help. Yeah. Days and weeks passed away without any, even a momentary doubt upon my part, and as to the course to be pursued by me, the allotted period had at length elapsed, the day arrived upon which I was to communicate my decision to my uncle. Although my resolution had never for a moment wavered, I could not shake off the dread of the approaching colloquy, and my heart sank within me as I heard the expected summons. I had not seen my cousin Edward since the occurrence of the grand escalarment. He had most he must have stupid studiously avoided me. I suppose from policy it could not have been from delicacy. I was prepared for a terrific burst of fury from my uncle as soon as I should make known my determination, and I, not unreasonably, feared that some act of violence or of intimidation would next be resorted to. Filled with these jury forebodings, I fearfully opened the study door, and the next minute I stood in my uncle's presence. He received me with a courtesy which I dreaded, as arguing a favorable anticipation respecting the answer which I was to give, and after some slight delay he began by saying, it will be a relief to both of us, I believe, to bring this conversation as soon as possible to an issue. You will excuse me, then, my dear niece, for speaking with a bluntness which, under other circumstances, would be unpardonable. You have, I am certain, given the subject of our last interview fair and serious consideration, and I trust you are now prepared with candor to lay your answer before me. A few words were suffice. We perfectly understand one another. He and I, he paused. And I though feeling that I stood upon a mind which might in an instant explode, nevertheless answered with perfect composure. I must now, sir, make the same reply which I did upon the last occasion, and I reiterate the declaration which I then made, that I can, nor will, while life and reason remain, consent to a union with my cousin Edward. The announcement wrought no apparent change in Sir Arthur, except that he became deadly, almost lividly pale. He seemed lost in a dark thought for a minute, and then, with a slight effort, he said, You have answered me honestly and directly, and you say your resolution is unchangeable. 
Well, would it have been otherwise? Would it have been otherwise? But, be it as it is, I am satisfied. He gave me his hand. It was cold and damp as death. Under an assumed calmness, it was evident that he was fearfully agitated. He continued to hold my hand with an almost painful pressure, as if unconsciously seeming to forget my presence. He muttered, Strange, strange, strange indeed. Fatuity, helpless fatuity. There was here a long pause. Madness indeed to strain a cable that is rotten to the very heart. It must break, and then all goes. There was again a pause of some minutes, after which suddenly, changing his voice and manner of tone to one of wakeful clarity, he exclaimed, Margaret, my son Edward shall plague you no more. He leaves this country tomorrow for France. He shall speak no more upon this subject. Never, never more. Whatever events depended upon your answer must now take their own course. But as for this fruitless proposal, it has been tried enough. It can be repeated no more. At these words, he coldly suffered my hand to drop as if to express his total abandonment of all his projected schemes of alliance. And certainly the action with the accompanying words produced upon my mind a more solemn and depressing effect than I believe possible to have been caused by the course which I had determined to pursue. It struck upon my heart with an awe and heaviness which will accompany the accomplishment of an important and irrevocable act, even though no doubt or scruple remains to make it possible that the agent should wish it undone. Well, said my uncle after a little time, we will now cease to speak about this topic, never to resume it again. Remember, you shall have no farther uneasiness from Edward. He leaves Ireland for France tomorrow. This will be a relief to you. May I depend upon your honor that no word touching the subject of this interview shall ever escape you? I gave him the desired assurance. He said, It is well. I am satisfied. We have nothing more, I believe, to say upon either side, and my presence must be a restraint upon you. I shall therefore bid you farewell. I then left the apartment, scarcely knowing what to think of this strange interview which had taken place. On the next day, my uncle took occasion to tell me that Edward had actually sailed, if his intention had not been prevented by adverse winds or weather, and two days after he actually produced a letter from his son, written, as it said, on board and dispatched while the ship was getting underway. This was a great satisfaction to me, and as being likely to prove so, it was no doubt communicated to me by Sir Arthur. During all this trying period, I had found infinite consolation in the society and sympathy of my dear cousin Emily. I never, in after life, formed a friendship so close, so fervent, and upon which, in all its progress, I could look back with feelings of such unalloyed pleasure, upon whose termination I must ever dwell with so deep, so yet unbittered a, unembittered a sorrow. In cheerful converse with her, I soon recovered my spirits considerably, and passed my time agreeably, although enough although still in the utmost seclusion. Matters went on smoothly enough, although I could not help sometimes feeling a momentary but horrible uncertainty concerning my uncle's character, which was not altogether unwarranted by the circumstances of the two, of these two trying interviews, the particulars of which I have just detailed. The unpleasantness, the unpleasant impression which these conferences were calculated to leave upon my mind was fast wearing away when there occurred a circumstance slight indeed in itself but calculated irrepressibly to awaken all my worst suspicions and to overwhelm me again with the anxiety and terror <laughs> i had one day left the house with my cousin emily in order to take a ramble of considerable length for the purpose of sketching my favorite views and we had walked about half a mile when i perceived that we had forgotten our drawing materials the absence of which would have would have defeated the object of our walk Laughing at our own thoughtlessness, we returned to the house, and leaving Emily outside, I ran upstairs to procure the drawing books and pencils which lay in my bedroom. 
As I ran up the stairs, I met I was met by the tall by the tall, ill-looking French woman, evidently a good deal flurried. Que vous, madame? said she, with a more decided effort to be polite than I had ever known her to make. No, no, no matter, said I hastily, running by her in the direction of my room. Madame, she, cried she in a high key, restez ici, s'il vous plaît. Voltaire chamber n'est pas vite. I continued to move on without heeding her. She was some way behind me, and feeling that she could not otherwise prevent my entrance, for I was now upon the very lobby, she made a desperate attempt to seize hold of my person. She succeeded in grasping the end of my shawl, which she drew from her shoulders, but slipping at the same time upon a, the polished oak floor, she fell at full length upon the boards. A little frightened as well as angry at the rudeness of the strange woman, I hastily pushed open the door of my room, at which I now stood in order to escape from her. But great was my amazement on entering to find my apartment preoccupied. The window was open, and beside it stood two male figures. They appeared to be examining the fastenings of the casement, and their backs were turned towards the door. One of them was my uncle. They both had turned to, on my entrance as if startled. The stranger was booted and cloaked and wore a heavy, broad-leafed hat over his brows. He turned but for a moment and averted his face. But I see enough to convince me that he was none other than my cousin Edward. My uncle had some iron instrument in his hand, which he hastily concealed behind his back, and coming towards me said something as if in an explanatory tone, but I was too much shocked and confounded to what it to understand what it might be. He said something about repairs, window frames, cold, and safety. I did not wait, however, to ask or to receive explanations, but hastily left the room. As I went downstairs, I thought I heard the voice of the French woman in the shrill, volubility of excuse and others uttering suppressed but vehement appreciations of or what seemed to be such i joined my cousin emily quite out of breath i need not say that my head was too full of other things to think much of drawing for that day i imparted to her frankly the cause of my alarms but at the same time as gently as i could and with tears she promised vigilance devotion and love i never had reason for a moment to repent the unreserved confidence with which i proposed in her she was no less surprised than I at the unexpected appearance of Edward, whose departure from France neither of us had for a moment doubted, but which now proved to be his actual pretense to be nothing more than an imposture practiced, I feared, for no good end. The situation in which I had found my uncle had very nearly removed all my doubts as to his designs. I magnified suspicions and certainties, and dreaded night after night that I should be murdered in my bed. The nervousness produced by sleepless nights and days of anxious fears increased the horrors of my situation, such a degree that at length I wrote a letter to Mr. Jeffreys, an old and faithful friend of my father's, and perfectly acquainted with all his affairs, praying him, for God's sake, to relieve me from my present terrible situation, and communicating without reserve the nature and grounds of my suspicions. This letter I kept sealed and directed for two or three days, always about my person, for a discovery would have been ruinous, in expectation of an opportunity which might be safely trusted of having it placed in the post office, as neither Emily nor I were permitted to pass beyond the precincts of the demence itself, which was surrounded by high walls formed of dry stone, the difficulty of procuring such an opportunity was greatly enhanced. At this time, Emily had a short conversation with her father, which she reported to me instantly. After some indifferent matter, he had asked her whether she and I were upon good terms, and whether I was unreserved in my disposition. She answered in the affirmative, and inquired whether... I had been much surprised to find him in my chamber on the other day. She answered that I had been both surprised and amused. And what did she think of George Wilson's appearance? Who? inquired she. Oh, the architect, he answered, who is to contract for repairs of the house. 
He has accounted a handsome fellow. She could not see his face, said Emily, and she was in such a hurry to escape that she scarcely observed him. Sir Arthur appeared satisfied, and the conversation ended. The slight conversation, repeated accurately to me by Emily, had the effect of confirming, if indeed anything was required to do so, all that I had be before believed as to Edward's actual presence, and I naturally became, if more possible, more anxious than ever to dispatch the letter to Mr. Jeffreys. An opportunity at length occurred, as Emily and I were walking one day near the gate of the, of the demence. A lad from the village happened to be passing down the avenue from his house. The spot was secluded, and his person was not connected by service with those whose observations I dreaded. I committed the letter to his keeping with strict injunctions that he should put it, without delay, into the receiver of the town post office. At the same time, I added a suitable gratuity, and the man, having made many protestations of punctuality, was soon out of sight. He was hardly gone when I began to doubt my discretion in having trusted him, but I had no better or safer means of dispatching the letter, and I was not warranted in suspecting him of such wanton dishonesty as a disposition to tamper with it. But I could not be quite satisfied of its safety until I had received an answer, which could not arrive for a few days. Before I did, however, an event occurred which a little surprised me. I was sitting in my bedroom early in the day, reading by myself, when I heard a knock at the door. Come in, said I, and my uncle entered the room. Will you excuse me, said he. I sought you in the parlor, and thence I have come here. I desire to say a word to you. I trust that you have hitherto found my conduct to you such as that of a guardian towards his ward should be. I dared not withhold my assent. And, he continued, I trust that you have not found me harsh or unjust, and that you have perceived, my dear niece, that I have sought to make this poor place as agreeable to you as I may be. I assented again, and he put his hand in his pocket whence he drew a folded paper, and dashing on the table with startling emphasis, he added, Did you write that letter? The sudden and fearful alteration of his voice, manner and face, but more than the unexpected production of my letter to Mr. Jeffreys, which I at once recognized, so confounded and terrified me that I almost felt choking. I could not utter a word. Did you write that letter? He repeated with slow, intense emphasis. You did. Liar and hypocrite. You dared write that foul and infamous libel, which it shall be your last. Men will universally believe you mad if I choose to call for an inquiry. I can make you appear so. The suspicions expressed in that letter are the hallucinations and alarms of a moping lunatic. I have defeated your first attempt, madam, and by the holy God, if you ever make another, chains, darkness, and the keeper's whip shall keep your portion. With these astounding words, he left the room, leaving me almost fainting. I was now almost reduced to despair. My last cast had failed. I had no course left but that of escaping secretly from the castle and placing myself under the protection of the nearest magistrate. I felt if this were not done, and speedily, that I should be murdered. No one, from mere description, can have an idea of the unmitigated horror of my situation. A helpless, weak, inexperienced girl, placed under the power and wholly at the mercy of evil men, and feeling that I had it not in my power to escape for one moment from the malignant influences under which I was probably doomed to fall. With a consciousness, too, that a violence, if murder were designed, no human being would be near to aid me. My dying shriek would be lost in the void of space. I had seen Edward but once during his visit, and as I did not meet him again, I began to think that he must have taken his departure, a conviction which was, to a certain degree, satisfactory, as I regarded his absence as indicating the removal of immediate danger. Emily arrived circuitously at the same conclusion, and not without good grounds, for she managed indirectly to learn that Edward's black horse had actually been for a day and part of a night in the castle stables just the time of her brother's supposed visit. The horse had gone, 
and as she argued, the rider must have departed with her. With it. This point being so far settled, I felt a little less uncomfortable when being one day alone in my bedroom, I happened to look out from the window and to my unutterable horror, I beheld peering through an opposite casement my cousin Edward's face. Had I seen the evil one himself in bodily shape, I could not have experienced a more sickening revulsion. I was too much appalled to move at once from the window, but I did so soon enough to avoid his eye. He was looking fixedly down to the narrow quadrangle upon which the window opened. I shrunk back unperceived to pass the rest of the day in terror and despair. I went to my room early that night, but I was too miserable to sleep. At about twelve o'clock, feeling very nervous, I determined to call my cousin Emily, who slept, you will remember, in the next room, which communicated with mine by a second door. By this private entrance, I found my way into her chamber, and without difficulty persuaded her to return to my room and sleep with me. We accordingly lay down together, she undressed and I with my clothes on, for I was every moment walking up and down the room and felt too nervous and miserable to think of rest or comfort. Emily was soon fast asleep, and I lay awake, fervently longing for the first pale gleam of morning, and reckoning every stroke of the old clock with an impatience which made every hour appear like six. It must have been about one o'clock when I thought I heard a slight noise at the partition door between Emily's room and, my, and mine, as if caused by somebody's turning the key in the lock. I held my breath, and the same sound was repeated at the second door of my room, that which opened upon the lobby. The sound was here distinctly caused by the revolution of the bolt in the lock, and it was followed by a slight pressure upon the door itself, as if to ascertain the security of the lock. The person, whoever it might be, was probably satisfied, for I had heard the old boards of the lobby creak and strain as if under the weight of somebody moving cautiously over them. My sense of hearing became unnaturally, almost painfully acute. I suppose the imagination added distinctness to sounds vague in themselves. I thought that I could actually hear the breathing of the person who was slowly returning along the lobby. At the head of the staircase, there appeared to occur a pause, and I could distinctly hear two or three sentences hastily whispered. The steps then descended the stairs with apparently less caution. I ventured to walk quickly and lightly to the lobby door and attempted to open it. It was indeed fast locked from the outside, as was also the other. I now felt that the dreadful hour was come, but one desperate expedient remained. It was to awaken Emily, and by our united strength to attempt to force the partition door, which was slightly which was slighter than the other, than the other, and through this passed to the lower part of the house, whence it might be possible to escape to the grounds and so to the village. I returned to the bedside and shook Emily, but in vain. Nothing that I could do availed to produce from her more than a few incoherent words. It was a death-like sleep. She had certainly drunk some. She had certainly drank some of narcotic, as probably I had also, in spite of all caution, which I examined everything presented to me, presented to us to eat or drink. I now attempted with as little noise as possible to force first one door, then the other, but all in vain. I believe no strength could have affected my object, for both doors opened inwards. I therefore collected whatever movables I could carry thither and piled them against the doors so as to assist me in whatever attempts I should make to resist the entrance of those without. I then returned to the bed and endeavored once again, but fruitlessly, to awaken my cousin. It was not sleep. It was, tor it was torpor, lethargy, death. I knelt down and prayed with an agony of earnestness, and then, seating myself upon the bed, I awaited my fate with a kind of terrible tranquility. I heard a faint click I heard a faint clanking sound from the narrow court which I had already which I have already mentioned, as if caused by the scraping of some iron instrument against stones or rubbish. I, at first determined not to disturb the calmness which I now experienced, by uselessly watching the proceedings of those who sought my life, 
but as the sounds continued the horrible curiosity which i felt overcame every other emotion and i determined at all hazards to gratify it i therefore crawled upon my hands and knee my knees to the window so as to let the smallest possible portion of my head appear above the sill the moon was shining with an uncertain radiance upon the antique gray buildings and obliquely upon the narrow courts court beneath one side of it was therefore clearly illuminated while the other was lost in obscurity the sharp outlines of the old gables with their nodding clusters of ivy being at first alone visible whoever or whatever occasioned the noise which had excited my curiosity was concealed under the shadow of the dark side of the quadrangle i placed my hand over my eyes to shade them from the moonlight which was so bright as to be almost dazzling and peering into the darkness i first dimly but afterwards gradually almost with full distinctness beheld the form of a man engaged in digging what appeared to be a rude hole close under the wall some implements probably a shovel and a pickaxe lay beside him and to these he every now and then applied to himself as a nature as the nature of the ground required he pursued his task rapidly and with as little noise as possible so thought i as shovelful after shovelful the dislodged rubbish mounted into a heap they are digging the grave in which before two hours pass i must lie a cold mangled corpse i am theirs i cannot escape i felt as if my reason was leaving me i started my feet i started to my feet and in a mere despair i applied myself again to each of the two doors alternately i strained every nerve and sinew but i might as well have attempted with my single strength to force the building itself from its foundations i threw myself madly upon the ground and clasped my hands over my eyes as if to shut out the horrible images which crowded upon me the paroxysm passed away i prayed once more with the bitter agonized fervor of one who feels the hour of death is present and inevitable when i arose i went once more to the window and looked out just in time to see a shadow figure glide stealthily along the wall the task was finished the catastrophe of tragedy must soon be accomplished i determined now to defend my life to the last and that i might be able to do so with some effect i searched the room for something which might serve as a weapon but either through accident or else in anticipation of such a possibility everything which might have been made available for such a purpose had been removed if i must die tamely and without an effort to defend myself a thought suddenly struck me might might it not be possible to escape through the door which the assassin must open in order to enter the room i resolved to make the attempt i felt assured that the door through which the ingress of the room would be effected was that which opened upon the lobby it was the more direct way besides being for obvious reasons less liable to interruption than the other i resolved then to place myself behind a projection of the wall the shadow would serve fully to conceal me when the door should be opened and before they could have discovered the identity of the occupant of the bed to creep noiselessly from the room and then to trust to providence for my escape in order to facilitate this scheme i removed all the lumber which i had heaped against the door and i had nearly completed my arrangements when i perceived the room suddenly darkened by the close approach of some shadowy object to the window on turning my eye in that direction i observed at the top of the casement as it suspended from above first the feet then the legs then the body and at length the whole figure of a man present itself it was edward tyrell he appeared to be guiding his descent so as to bring his feet upon the center of the stone block which occupied the lower part of the window and having secured his footing upon this he kneeled down and began to gaze into the room as the moon was gleaming into the chamber and the bed curtains were drawn he was able to distinguish the bed itself and its contents he appeared satisfied with his scrutiny for he looked up and made a sign with his hand he then applied his hands to the windowed frame which must have ingeniously been which must have been ingeniously contrived for the purpose for which apparently no resistance of the, the whole frame 
containing casement and all, slipped away from its position in the wall and was by him lowered into the room. The cold night wind wavered the bed curtains, and he paused for a moment. All was still again, and he stepped in upon the floor of the room. He held in his hand what appeared to be a steel instrument shaped something like a long hammer. This he held rather behind him, while, with three long tiptoe strides, he brought himself to the bedside. I felt that the discovery must now be made, and held my breath in momentary expectation of the of the execration in which he would vent his surprise and disappointment. I closed my eyes. There was a pause, but it was a short one. I heard two dull blows given in rapid succession, a quivering sigh, and the long-drawn, heavy breathing of the sleeper was forever suspended. I unclosed my eyes and saw the murderer fling the quilt across the head of his victim. He then, with the instrument of death still in his hand, proceeded to the lobby door, upon which he tapped sharply twice or thrice. A quick step was then heard approaching, and a voice whispered something from without. Edward answered with a kind of shuddering chuckle. Her ladyship is past complaining. Unlock the door, in the devil's name, unless you're afraid to come in and help me lift her out of the window. Then, the key was turned in the lock, the door opened, and my uncle entered the room. I have told you already that I had placed myself under the shade of a projection of the wall close to the door. I had instinctively shrunk down, cowering towards the ground on the entrance of Edward, though the window, through the window, when my uncle entered the room. He and his son both stood so very close to me that his hand was at every moment upon the point of touching my face. I held my breath and maintained mo and remained motionless as death. "'You had no interruption from the next room?' said my uncle. "'No,' was the brief reply. "'Secure the jewels, Ned. The French harpy must not lay her claws upon them. You're a steady hand, by God. Not much blood, eh?' "'Not twenty drops,' replied his son, and those on the quilt. "'I'm glad it's over,' whispered my uncle again. "'We must lift.' the the thing through the window and lay the rubbish over it they then turned to the bedside and winding the bedclothes round the body carried it between them slowly to the window and exchanging a br few brief words with someone below they shoved it under the, the over the windowsill and i heard it fall heavily underneath i'll take the jewels said my uncle there are two caskets in the lower drawer he proceeded with an accuracy which i had been more at ease which, had I been more at ease, would have furnished with me a matter of astonishment, to lay his hand upon the very spot where my jewels lay, and having possessed himself he, himself of them, he called to his son, Is the rope made fast above? I am no fool to be sure it is, replied he. They then lowered themselves from the window, and I rose lightly and cautiously, scarcely daring to breathe from my place of concealment, and was creeping towards the door when I heard my uncle's voice exclaim in a sharp whisper, Get up again! God damn you, you forgot to lock the room door. And I perceived by the strain of the rope which hung from above that this mandate was instantly obeyed. Not a second was to be lost. I passed the door, which was only closed and moved and as rapidly as I could, consistently with stillness along the lobby. Before I had gone many yards, I heard the door through which I had just passed roughly lock on the inside. I glided down the stairs in terror, lest at every corner I should meet the murderer or one of his accomplices. I reached the hall and listened for a moment to ascertain whether all was silent around. No sound was audible. The parlor windows opened on the park, and through one of them I might, I thought, easily effect my escape. Accordingly, I hastily entered, but to my consternation, a candle was burning in the room, and by its light I saw a figure seated at the dining table, upon which lay glasses, bottles, and other accompaniments of a drinking party. Two or three chairs were placed about the table irregularly as if hastily abandoned by their occupants. A single glance satisfied me that the figure was that of the French attendant. 
She was fast asleep, having probably drank deeply. There was something malignant and ghastly in the calmness of this bad woman's features, dimly illuminated as they were by the flickering blaze of the candle. A knife lay upon the table, and the terrible thought struck me. Should I kill this sleeping accomplice in the guilt in the guilt of the murderer and thus secure my retreat? Nothing could be easier. It was but to draw the blade across her throat, the work of a second. An instant's pause, however, corrected me. No, thought I. The God who has conducted me thus far through the valley of shadow of death will not abandon me now. I will fall into their hands, or I will escape hence, but it shall be free from the stain of blood. His will be done. I felt a confidence arising from this reflection, an assurance of protection which I cannot describe. There were no other means of escape, so I advanced with a firm step with a firm step and collected mine to the window. I noiselessly withdrew the bars and unclosed the shutter. I pushed open the casement, and without waiting to look behind me, I ran with the utmost speed, scarcely feeling the ground beneath my feet, down the avenue, taking care to stick upon the grass which bordered it. I had not for a moment slackened my speed, and I had now gained the central point between the park gate and the mansion house. Here, the avenue made a wider circuit, and in order to avoid delay, I directed my way across the smooth sward round the round which the carriageway wound, intending at the opposite side of the level, at a point which I distinguished by a group of old birch trees, to enter again upon the beaten track, which was from thence tolerably direct to the gate. I had, with my utmost speed, got about halfway across this broad flat when the rapid tramp of a horse's hoof struck upon my ear. My heart swelled in my bosom as though I would smother. The clattering of galloping hooves approached. I was persuaded they were now upon the sward on which I was running. There was not a bush or bramble to shelter me, and, as if to render escape altogether desperate, the moon, which had hitherto been obscured at this very moment, shone forth with a broad, clear light, which made every object distinctly visible. The sounds were close behind me. I felt my knees bending under me with the sensation which unnerves one in a dream. I reeled, I stumbled, I fell, and at the same instant the cause of my alarm wheeled past me at full gallop. It was one of the young fillies which pastured loose about the park, whose frolics had thus all but maddened me with terror. I scrambled to my feet and rushed on with weak but rapid steps, my sportive companion still galloping round and round me with many a frisk and fling, until at length, more dead than alive, I reached the avenue gate and crossed the stile. I scarcely knew how. I ran through the village in which all was silent as the grave, until my progress was rushed by a hoarse voice of a sentinel, who cried, Who goes there? I felt that I was safe now. I turned in the direction... I turned in the direction... I lost my place. I turned in the direction of the voice and fell fainting at the soldier's feet. When I came to myself, I was sitting in a miserable hollow, hovel surrounded by strange faces, all bespeaking curiosity and compassion. Many soldiers were in it also. Indeed, as I afterwards found, it was employed as a guard room by a detachment of troops quartered for that night in the town. In a few words, I informed their officer of the circumstances which had occurred, describing also the appearance of the persons engaged in the murder, and he... Without further loss of time than was necessary to procure the attendance of a magistrate, proceeded to the mansion house of Cricketley, taking with him a party of his men. But the villains had discovered their mistake and had effected their escape before the arrival of the military. The French woman was, however, arrested in the neighborhood upon the next day. She was tried and condemned at the ensuing Aziz, and previous to her execution, confessed that she confessed that she had a hand in making Hugh Tisdale's bed. She had been a housekeeper in the castle at the time, and a cher ami of my uncle's. She was, in reality, able to speak English like a native, but had exclusively used the French language, I suppose, to facilitate her designs. 
She died in the same hardened she died the same hardened wretch she had lived, confessing her crimes only as she alleged that her doing so might involve Sir Arthur Tyrrell, the great author of her guilt and misery, and whom she now regarded with unmitigated detestation. With the particulars of Sir Arthur's and his son's escape as far as they are known, you are acquainted. You are also in possession of their after fate, the terrible, the tremendous retribution which, after long delays of many years, finally overtook and crushed them. Wonderful and inscrutable are the dealings of God with his creatures. Deep and fervent as must always be my gratitude to heaven for my deliverance, affected by a chain of providential occurrences, the failing of a single link of which must have ensured my destruction, it was long before I could look back upon it with other, with other feelings than those of bitterness, almost of agony. The only being that had ever really loved me, my nearest and dearest friend, ever ready to sympathize, to counsel, and to assist, the gayest, the gentlest, the warmest heart, the only creature on earth that cared for me. Her life had been the price of my deliverance, and I then uttered the wish which no event of my long and sorrowful life has taught me to recall, that she had been spared, and that in her stead I were moldering in the grave, forgotten and at rest. Good night, Grandma.